before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now on with the show. My guest today is my friend Dave Dredge of Convex Strategies in Singapore. Now, Dave will be familiar to to any listeners who saw my interviews with him during my time at Real Vision. Those conversations resonated with so many people thanks to Dave's extraordinary gift for, for communicating really complex ideas in remarkably relatable ways. And the catalyst for this conversation was a monthly update he wrote, uh, which I think was published in September. It was his August update. The piece in question began with the US withdrawal in Afghanistan, but where it went from there was a journey into mathematical probability, self-organized criticality, and at one point, Formula One racing. And before listening to this conversation, I would urge you to download and read Dave's monthly update for August, a link to which you'll find in the transcript to this podcast which you can download from the podcast page at grant-williams.com. You'll find that link at the firm's website, convex-strategies.com. This, ladies and gentlemen, is one for the ages. So please enjoy my conversation with Dave Dredge. Well, Dave, mate, good to see you again. It's been it's been way too long. Thanks for thanks for staying in the office late on a on a Friday night, no less, to have a chat with me. It uh, given the Giants Dodgers playoff games tomorrow morning, I figured this was better for me. Yeah, actually, good point. Good point indeed. Plus, where are you going to go? You're in Singapore. You got nowhere you can go anyway, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, now, now the um, the kind of catalyst for this conversation was. Um, the latest update that you guys put out. I guess it was your August update. Uh, I don't know if the September one's come out yet, but um, Julian uh, shared that with me and it was just such a fantastic read. And uh, I've been keen to talk to you again for a long time, but this was just a perfect excuse to do that. And, and you know, I, when, I, when I open the, the letter and, I, and the first thing I see is this map of Afghanistan, I'm thinking, all right, where's he going with this? And then, you know, the next thing I know, half an hour's gone by and I've just been engrossed in this in this piece. So rather than me just read it out, I figured you and I could sit and chat about it. So let's jump in with Afghanistan and, and talk about why you started with that, what was important about it. And then I'm sure it will lead us through the letter pretty much chronologically based on where, where my mind went. Yeah. yeah you know, as, as you're somewhat aware, we very much, or I very much look at the world through the lens of what's known in physics space as self-organized criticality which was espoused by a physicist by the name of Per Bock, who wrote a book called How Nature Works, which is about how nature works. So when I saw, you know, as the Afghanistan thing was going on, you know, I saw one of these was on a BBC uh, news story, a pictures of the maps of the evolution over the last handful of weeks of which provinces were in government control, which were in dispute, and which yeah. were in uh, Taliban control by color. And the Taliban's ones were red, and there was just a few red ones on July 9th, after the day after uh, Biden gave a speech on J- July 8th when he said everything was getting out by August 31st and everything was fine. And that map stays more or less looking the same. Uh, and a few of the 
provinces start flipping colors back and forth. And then one day or literally well, two days, they all turn red over a weekend. Every single province turns red. And it just hit me, you know, that's exactly self-organized criticality. That's the picture that Per Bach generated in his sand pile model of how sand piles dropping one grain of sand at a time develop the self-organized criticality where a connected network of avalanches get generated by one more grain of sand and the inevitability of that and the unpredictability of it and the fact that it follows power laws like earthquakes or avalanches in real world, et cetera. And it just struck me that that was such a simple way to understand something that seemingly nobody understood that how did we go to this happening? And then that ties into how we look at economies and markets and well, everything, how nature works. This is something that I've spoken about a lot in the past, this idea about the natural forces that, that central banks are trying to keep at bay with, with, with their policies, you know, and um, there's only one winner in that battle ultimately. But, you know, when you look at that map of Afghanistan and we'll, we'll include a link to the, to the letter, because I think everybody should read it and, and give, you can give people places to go for that later in the conversation. But you look at that map of Afghanistan and it is startling to watch it happen. It literally was like over that weekend, 15, 16 of August, or I think roughly around there, uh, when it all happened. And the avalanche sandpile theory, it's not a surprise to anybody that that happens. You know, if you build a pile up, it, it becomes too unstable. What is it that makes us so blind to this stuff in anything but a physical representation of that, i.e. unless you're piling things up on top of each other, we fail to understand what's happening here. It's exactly the same forces in in action. It's an amazing thing. And and science knows it, right? Science knows, you know, the, the example that I always use, you've heard me use a thousand times, is the the forest fire analogy, right? The the longer you go without a forest fire, the bigger the risk gets of a catastrophic forest fire. And and we've learned through years of forestry management that that preventing and putting out every forest fire eventually leads to all of Yellowstone National Park burning down. And yet there seems to be this human nature of somehow trying to resist nature and that we feel like we can uh, prop up and manipulate and sustain sand piles all the while we're increasing the risk, not reducing the risk. And, and, you know, there's, reams and decades of research into earthquakes that they're unpredictable and yet they expand at a power law basis that every point on the Richter scale is 10 times stronger than the previous right, one. Right. And and that's the way sand piles avalanches behave and the way Taliban's take over all of Afghanistan after 20 years of propping up an artificial sand pile. Yeah, I mean, that, that phase transition aspect of this, you know, was so important to understand. So, so, so let's talk about that. We'll, we'll, we'll come on to what it means for markets and central banks and stuff in a minute. But let's go back to the Afghanistan situation and just walk us through how the power laws, how the self-organized criticality and how the phase transitions applied in that as an example. Yeah, you know, I... I, I talk about in the piece, the and I make the analogy between the Afghanistan sand pile where the, the bad guy is the Taliban and 
central bank policy where where the bad guy is system wide solvency risk, right? And and the COVID pandemic where the bad guy is the virus, and the the solution to that problem is a indefinite uh, imposition of intervention. And so you had 20 years in Afghanistan of uh, injection of troops in the U.S. creating a, a, a protective bubble for Afghanistan against the Taliban. Realized 10 years in that it was permanent and have spent the last 10 years trying to get out. So right. I make the analogy to, you know, if you notice in the piece, whenever I talk about troop withdrawals, I talk about tapering. And yeah. whenever yeah. I talk about uh, QE tapering, I talk about QE withdrawals, right? And, and, and so that looks very much the same. You have this, as I say, you, you know, it's a, it's a critical state when the intervention to support it is permanent, is indefinite. And, and as I say about QE, and I would say about lockdowns in, in terms of COVID policy, zero COVID policies, if they don't work, you do more. And if they do work, you do more. Right. right. And, yeah. and so you know you've got something that's in a critical state, right? You know a sand pile to sustain it necessitates indefinite permanent intervention. And, and even, you know, Joe Biden in his speech on uh, July 8th said it, right? He said it in his speech, you know, we realize this is permanent and we won't do it permanently. And the cost of doing it, the, the wasteful spending and corruption and lives cost isn't worth any potential upside. He even says, I won't allow another generation of Americans to go here again for only the same result. Now, eventually, in some point, the somebody at the Fed's going to say the same thing. We won't let this happen again, right? Which is yeah, what they said when they cre you created Bretton Wood a long time ago. But let's talk about that because there's a decision being made here, right? There's a decision being made, and you, and you touched on it there briefly about the solvency issue, and, and that's really underpinning all this. The financial side of this discussion is this disparity between trying to treat a solvency problem with liquidity, which is really what's been going on for such a long time now. And they are two completely different problems. And one can sustain the other for a while, the same way the American troops in Afghanistan could maintain a semblance of peace with kind of little flare-ups here. Think of it like a volspike, I guess. But a decision gets made. So at some point, the administration in America has made a decision. They've followed through with it with that, this is where we're going now. This is what's going to be done to hell with the outcome. Is that even possible with the Federal Reserve? Because the 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 damage by the from the Afghanistan decision is media related in the initial stages at home, but there's the relief that you're bringing the troops home. That, you know, mums are going to get to see their kids again, and after that, the problem is confined largely to Afghanistan mm. overseas. And depending on the amount of media coverage, it can fade away pretty quickly, as it seems to have done now. But a similar decision on the part of the Federal Reserve, that's a whole different a whole different ballgame. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So one of the questions. So in, in our world of risk, and again, you know, my my definition of risk is what hurts if it happens. It's not what you yeah. think is going to happen. It's what hurts if it happens. And so risk, and this is a Benoit Mandelbrot thing, it's dimension is subjective. 
and, and risk is subjective. Everybody's risk is unique. What hurts you is unique. Yeah. And, you know, people ask me all the time when we're talking about risk in the financial system, risk to the financial sandpile, the core instability, fragility, financial instability, you know, is likely to be at risk to rising interest rates, the removal of the liquidity intervention and the solvency comes clear. So people will say, well, why would that ever happen? I say, well, I don't know. I presume because they decided to, which is right, exactly right. the same question in Afghanistan. Why would the U.S. government and the world's most powerful military allow the Taliban over a weekend to take over all of Afghanistan? Well, presumably because they decided to. Right. They could stay there forever. I assume that the U.S. military, with the commitment and the willingness to spend however many trillions of dollars, could hold the Taliban at bay indefinitely. But they decided not to. Likewise, the Fed, I assume, if they want to, could sustain the sand pile. They can print money and buy assets and keep interest rates at zero forever. But I also assume at some point they may decide they don't want to. They may decide like well, Obama decided in 2011 and then supported by Trump and then supported by Biden that they were getting out. And then eventually they did. You know, took them as long to get out as it did to supposedly achieve their objective. But and so for you know, in the Fed's case, who knows how long it takes them to taper and normalize interest rates and you know, could be decades down the road. May not be. I mean, yesterday, good example, right? Yesterday. Uh, the Polish Central Bank, who was objecting to it 24 hours ago, hiked interest rates 40 basis points on a 10 yeah. basis point base because the prime minister said, I hope the central bank does the right thing. And I, you know, you know better than anybody probably I speak to, nothing's more sociopolitically destabilizing than inflation. And we've yeah. had a lot of inflation. We just haven't you know, measured it. it. As our mutual friend Ben Hunt would said, they've done a great job of keeping it out of the common knowledge game, but now they've lost control of that. And and so you're seeing around the whole world, I've got written up on the whiteboard here, you know, RBNZ hiked and the check checks hiked yep. 75 basis points in one go. And and without fail, they've all come out today and said, this is the beginning. We're just getting started. We've got much more to go. Now, will the Fed ever get there? I don't know how uh, threatening to political uh, election stability does inflation have to get before the powers that be say, do something about it. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. And, and that was that was something actually when I read your piece that really struck me when you talked about why did they leave? Because they decided to. Why did they let the Taliban take up? Because they decided to. And then you got to the part about the Fed and you talked about, well, maybe they'll decide to let interest rates go higher. And- I'm sitting there slapping myself around the face because I think like everybody else, I almost become conditioned to thinking, well, they can't let that happen. And so they won't let that happen. And so you think about the problem from one perspective, which is, okay, what have they got to do to keep a lid on it? And, and you go through all the financial repression and you go through yield curve control and you go through all these things that they're going to get to. And they may well get to all those things. But it, I don't think it ever really occurred to me that one day they might just say, all right, to hell with it. We're, we're going to put rates up. What does that look like to, to get to that point and to see that decision, do you think? Yeah. I, as I talked about in the piece, so in, in all of these examples, in the, in the Afghanistan example, where the baddie is the Taliban and the U.S. military and endless spending is the sustaining, then they say, well, we, we aren't willing to do this indefinitely, so we're going to leave. But don't worry. 
the system will sustain because we've put in place a well-trained and well-armed Afghan national security forces. Everything will be fine. Well, likewise, in the zero lockdown policies on COVID that, you know, prevalent in New Zealand and Australia and other places, obviously the lockdown has to be permanent because, as I said, if it, if it doesn't work, you do more. And if it does work, you do more because right. the virus isn't going to go away. And so everybody says, well, we recognize this is indefinite. We can't do it indefinite. So we're going to open up, but it'll be okay because we will give you a well armed and well-trained vaccine so that you can operate without the bubble of protection. And then we'll find out if the vaccine is better than the Afghan national security forces. Right. Well, likewise, and I write about it a bit in the piece, we hear it all the time from the Fed and the various powers that be that are trying to sustain this. They're telling us every day that the well-capitalized financial system, Basel III, and standing repo facilities, and central counterparty clearing, and regulatory, and Randall Quarles, and the Financial Stability Board's massive write-up on justifying why the Federal Reserve should underwrite the asset holdings of levered non-bank financial institutions, which started in September 2019, and then accelerated to a an unlimited willingness to prop up levered non-bank financial institutions leverage, and then has flowed through to the announcement of the standing repo facility. And so they're telling you, don't worry if we step away, we've done all this work and you guys will be able to sustain a nice critical state without our artificial manipulation. And so people say, well, how will we know when it's going to happen? I say, well, I don't know. And I, I don't care. It doesn't matter to anybody's investment strategy. Just manage your payout function and you don't care, but you're likely, you know, just like the more you heard them tell you the Afghan national security forces could look after things. Well, likewise, you're likely to hear about how great their regulatory construct is and how well capitalized banks are and how standing repo facilities and, and new initial margin, margin arrangements. And, you know, I'm happy to talk about the stupidity of SIM and the new margining requirements if you want to get into the nitty gritty of bad mathematics. But, and so they'll, again, maybe they never do it. Maybe they say, we don't care how destructive inflation is and how many political parties get voted out of positions cycle after cycle after cycle. We're just going to keep going. And then Jay Powell, who and whoever succeeds him will talk as mindlessly about his what he thinks inflation is and his measures of price stability. And, and we'll all go on with life. But History says it happened, right? History yeah. says, you know, as I always say, the, you know, the, the mistake everybody, you know, things that drives me crazy is when people talk about policy mistakes because a central bank hiked at some point in a, and then the cycle ended. And I always say, well, that's like, you know, blaming the tender who cut you off hangover. Right, right. Yeah. Not the guy who, who sent you home that caused the hangover. The guys who served you all night long. Exactly right. Exactly right. But this is a perfect um, segue when you talk about Powell and, and what these guys are going to say. Because again, in, in the in the letter, you had these. You took. You went through. I think it was the June or July FOMC statement. And again, when I read that, a, a lot of that stuff I heard the same way as you when I heard it the first time. But again, being walked through that stuff and being shown the cherry picking of data, 
what it made me realize, because you know, some of those data points I knew and some of them I didn't, but it makes you realize that the narrative that's being disseminated from the lectern up there is aimed at really journalists that aren't going to necessarily do their work and dig into this. They're going to take this stuff and just report it. So, so let, let's go through it. Let's go through those examples because, again, they're, they're a slap in the face to anyone that isn't thinking about this stuff. Yeah, and I think just for the benefit of your listeners, I have to read one of his quotes word for word. So we'll go back a year earlier. So what you're talking about was actually his Jackson Hole speech that yes. I referenced, right? Yes, yes, but, I was uh, talking about 2020. Sorry, beg your pardon. Yeah, but the, the, in the in the year earlier press conference from July 2020, there was one question about inflation. So in the previous monthly, in my July update, I made some comments about the. July 2021 FOMC press conference. And then I thought, geez, what did he say a year ago? And so I went back and looked at it and I did the word search. In the July 2021 FOMC press conference, he uses the word inflation. I can't remember what I said, 87 times or something. 80, 86, in, 86, yeah, yeah. In the July 2021, it was nine times. The one question about it, and I'm going to read for you word for word his yeah. answer. So somebody asked him about if he had any concerns about inflation, given their policies of you know $120 billion a month buying and zero interest rates and et cetera, and all the fiscal. And he, quote, in terms of inflation, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I think fundamentally this is a disinflationary shock. I know they're... they're is a lot of discussion about how this might lead to inflation over time, but you know we're we're seeing disinflationary pressures around the world going into this. Now we see a big shock to demand, and we see core inflation dropping to one percent. And I do think for quite some time we're going to be struggling against disinflationary pressures rather than against inflationary pressures. That's a year ago. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is the, it's like you say he's not speaking to anybody that's going to challenge him on anything. He's, I mean, no offense to Chair Powell, but either he has no clue what he's talking about or nobody had prepared something for him to say. Right, right. Well, right. I mean, and in fairness to him at that time, inflation was not the problem they were they were looking at. But their job right, is to think through their policies, the response to it, and what it might mean for inflationary conditions. I mean, I mean, you, you, know, you had two jobs, right? They've got Here's two a, jobs. I'll give you a special treat because I'm working on September right now. Okay. <laughs> why I'm here late. Uh, here's his comments from the September 2021. So the one just a couple of weeks ago, September 22nd, somebody asked him this question. From the perspective of the average household that's now being asked to pay higher prices and increasingly higher prices for four years running, when for some this year, wages have actually gone down because they'd raised their forecast for future years. Right. And this is Powell's answer. So think about what he answered a year ago. In other words, he had no clue what he's talking about, right? Right. He's saying inflation's one, it's going to be disinflation. Now, a year later, his core measure is whatever, 3.6. CPI is 5.4 on its way to who knows where. So this guy says, you've now raised your projections. So he's raised his projections for this year to 4.2, mm-hmm. right, from one a year ago. Right. And for the next two years, 22 and 23, to 2.2 and 2.1. And so he answers the question like this. I guess the inflation rates for next year and 2023 were also marked up, but just by a couple of tenths. You're looking at 2.2 and 2.1. 
you know, two years and three years out. These are very, very, I don't think that households are going to, you know, notice a couple of tenths of an overshoot. Right. Right. His overshoot this year is 220 basis points. Yeah. Per his forecast, it'll be much higher than that. Again, it's amazing. You know, I don't know if he's, obviously it's all propaganda, but if you think they'd at least do the math, right? He can do the math and know that the 12 months commencing in January of this year on just the month to month changes that are already embedded through the first nine months that he's got the numbers, that there's no way we're coming in at his forecast. No, right? no not a chance in hell. So, you know, he's so keen to give propaganda that he's intentionally giving numbers he knows to be wrong. Unbelievable. But, but you know what's, re- what's really interesting? And, um, I saw a great chart on this from Gerard Minnick down in Australia, mm-hmm. and he showed the price of inflation swaps, um, mm-hmm. and he showed them in July 2020 and July 2021. And obviously the July 2021, they went straight down and then climbed back up again, and now they're straight up and coming down. And they basically converge right around 2%, the Fed's target. So the market is still pricing out that the Fed are going to have this magical 2% the market's very behind the curve as well. There's this big problem in the world that we've gotten so used to misusing the word inflation and inflation, which is really the creation of money and credit and the broad implication that has on everything. But we've been trained to refer to their chosen price measure as inflation. Yeah, yeah. One of the problems with inflation swaps is it's not a swap on inflation. It's a swap on CPI. Right. And, and yeah. that's a number that's actively controlled and manipulated and bogus. So think about it from a trading perspective. You're not trying to trade expectations. The the forward curve, inflation curve, as they would call it, is really a forward CPI curve or a forward PCE curve or a forward HICP curve in Europe. And you're trying to predict the manipulation of the hedonic adjustments. And you know, it, it's a crazy, crazy thing. But you know, did, did, there was a, Jim Reed did a great story. Did you see Jim Reed's piece yesterday? I did not. Where, so, you know, UK, where obviously inflation's exploding out of control yeah. and the central bank is actually talking about doing something about it. Jim was pointing out, I can't remember the exact dates, but, you know, five-year, five-year inflation swaps are like 7%. Or yeah. Some number. And so he was saying, well, you can go and, you know, lock this yield in. Obviously, your risk is that you got to pay the realized when you get there. But, you know, 7% versus, and, you know, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but you can do it versus guilt at 1.15 for 10 right, years. Right. Right. Well, one of those is obviously wrong, <laughs> right? Uh, it was a good point. You know, sure enough, you see what's happening to interest rates right now. But yeah, you, so we come back to the, but, you know, again, I, I loved the Jay Powell's uh, Jackson Hole speech, because in form and structure, again, putting on my self-organized criticality lens, it's almost exactly like Joe Biden's July 8th Afghanistan speech. Yeah, right? exactly right. He play, He's playing the exact same game. And again, you and I have talked about this, well, probably every time we've ever talked, are they dumb or are they in on it, right? Are they are they dumb or are they trying to delude us, right? Did, did Joe Biden have no clue what was going to happen or was he misrepresenting what he knew? Well, Jay Powell, same thing. You know, he makes the classic lead-in. You know, his first line in the Jackson Hole speech is, "In March of 2020, the pandemic hit." Yeah, a- as though history begins then. 
and that the whole buildup of financial fragility that led to the GFC and the response after the GFC and all of the quantitative easing and zero interest rates and, and recapitalization of banks, that history doesn't matter. But obviously in the sand pile, history matters. Yeah. Exactly what yeah. matters. And, and he's clearly making the effort to misrepresent. And he goes through his five inflationary points of why we, as I said in the piece, we shouldn't believe our lying eyes. And he makes clearly, and you know, a guy like you who's an expert at charts, he's clearly manipulated the visualization he's trying to create. He's used the Dallas trim mean, which for whatever reason, well, we know the reason because it trims <laughs> yeah. at a far greater perspective percentage of the wings than the Cleveland trim meet. And, and it makes it look much flatter. And, and what is, you know, these idiots never talked about trim mean when they said inflation was too low and the trim mean was still at 2% the whole time. Yeah. Right? Now, certainly when inflation is high, it's the numbers that are the highest that are the most painful to the people suffering it. And he's trying to act like that doesn't matter. It's exactly right. And and look, you only have to look, I mean, that those five points, and we should walk through the others in a second because they're all equally obvious once you actually look at them. But again, in the moment when he's making the speech, you can understand why people hear and go, oh, okay, okay, okay. And then don't go and do the, the follow-up work and say, hang on a second, what's he picking here? Because every single adjustment to CPI calculation has ended up with a lower CPI, right? No, no one's ever adjusted it and come up with a higher number. So we, we know what the adjustments are there for. But let's walk through these five points because that, you know, that first one and again, you know, the charts are in the piece, which, I, as again, I, I encourage everybody to look at. But the, you know, the charts are just such a simple way to make it very clear that the answer to that debate, and I've been having it in my own head for a long time now, is are they dumb or are they in on it? There's no question, right? <laughs> this is not dumb. They they absolutely yeah. are in on it and and being 100% disingenuous. Yeah. When I speak to my friends that worked there. I don't have many friends that still work there, but some of my friends used to work there and their partners, they're okay to listen to me uh, accuse them of being dumb. But when I yeah. accuse them of being immoral, they get very touchy. They don't well, like look, them. dumb is defensible because we're making guesses about the future. So, you know, how, how could we have known? There's no way. But being in on it is much more mendacious and arguably more dangerous because once you're in something like that, the risk of being exposed to being on it just makes you cover your tracks harder and faster and do more desperate things. Well, which could you know take us back to Afghanistan and wonder who right. might have been in on a 20-year slush fund of uh, sustaining this thing that with inevitable outcome. But to your point, so he, he makes five points. One, he says, well, look at the trim mean. It's not going up. Well, sure, if you take out the things that are going up, it's not going up. <laughs> it's funny that, yeah. Uh, and if you pick, you know, you can pick any number of ways to show that and and he picks the one that makes his point. Well, anything else? You, I mean, literally any other measure of rising prices, consumer prices, asset prices, any other me trimmed means, averages, medians, any other measure but the one he showed shows it's skyrocketing, right? And he chose the one that's not. And any other measure by any other department of his own institution, yeah. right? <laughs> that's yeah. the frustrating thing. Yeah. And then he sticks in the one showing that, you know, for the longest time, durable inflation has been low and services inflation has made up the bulk of the combined, his, you know, chosen, the, the least uh, sensitive measure of price stability you could find PCE core. 
And then the, all of a sudden this durable measure has skyrocketed. I mean, has gone vertical and then he just kind of leaves it as though he's made some sort of point there. <laughs> right. Right. And he sticks the picture in. I, so I sort of said, well, I don't get what his point is. Why is this something we shouldn't be concerned about? Rising durable prices in a supply constrained, excellent, you know, juice demand environment might be relevant. Now, my guess is if he replicates that chart after what's happened with prices this month, it's going to look even yeah. scarier. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. But but he he quickly moved on to wages, right? And then he goes, <laughs> which I, th- he I think that was wages, and he makes you know. And now I got to read another quote. Quote: Wage increases are essential to support a rising standard of living, and are generally, of course, a welcome development. And then I make the point: Surely he means real wages, right? Which are negative right now. And so, what's his point? So, is his point that wages need to start going up aggressively? In which case, why is he saying transitory? Inflation is not going to be a saying, problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and interesting enough, when you looked, through, I saw the data on the mentions of the word transitory. You had those eighty-six mentions of inflation this year versus nine a year ago, and transitory. You know, in 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 I think March, April, July, and August were between three and nine times. September, it wasn't mentioned. There was no yeah. use of the word transitory in September. So again, there's hints there that something may be happening here. And Bullard's comments last week about we may have higher inflation for a little while longer than you think, kind of, you can almost see the backpedaling now. Yeah. And then his his uh, next point was on- Yeah, this is this is a great, this is this is, this is just an amazing choice of chart. You said longer term inflation expectations. And he puts up what's known as a CIE, which, you know, forever has no sensitivity whatsoever. Right. No. You know, and he shows it on a chart. So it looks like it's moved, but the range on the chart is like from 1.95 to 2.05 for 20 right. years. Right. And so you put it on any chart with anything else. So I stuck in just the simple New York Fed three year median inflation expectation, which is going vertical. Yeah. Right? He didn't yeah. use that one for some reason. Just shameful. And then the last one he mentions is the prevalence of global disinflationary forces over the past quarter century. And he talks about that fact, totally disregarding that inflation is skyrocketing globally. And I put in simple charts, I can't remember who I used, UK and and Eurozone inflation numbers, which are going vertical. And then I gave the standard quote. I mean, you know, this is a Nassim Taleb quote. You know, he's saying, "Well, because on average it's been like this for so long, we shouldn't be worried about it." That's the old, you know, a five foot tall guy shouldn't assume he can cross a river that, on average, is four feet deep. Right. right. And then I get yeah. my 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 water boiling, you know, my phase transition, water boiling analogy, where you know, geez, the water hasn't boiled for a really long time, so we're going to crank the heat up and assume it'll take a really long time to boil. And then even yeah. as it starts boiling, we're like, eh, it won't boil over. But you extend that that analogy to throwing more things in there, right? And the water still doesn't boil, still doesn't boil. And that, and that, again, brings us back to this Fed policy, back to this idea that the inherent instability of the system, the, the solvency issues that really underpin all of this, you can keep throwing stuff into the boiling water and it won't boil. But sooner or later, you're going to have to throw more and more and more and more stuff at this thing. Because you reach that critical phase. Yeah. Yeah. 
in my my May update, I don't know if you saw that one. You know, so in May, everybody was that's when the transitory word was at its peak yeah. usage, right? So everybody's asking me, "Oh, is this transitory? Is this transitory?" And I said, "I don't know. Let's go. You know, what, what do we what do we hear? We hear that the the May CPI number PCE number is the highest since July two thousand and eight." I said, well, it was transitory in 2008, so it probably is. Let's not worry about it. Right. <laughs> and right. I, I, I'm not a very smart guy. I don't pay that much attention to things. So I stick the CPI chart up for year-on-year change for a long time, and I put in a few arrows for the various spike up, and I came up with the previous spikes in inflation terminated in August 1987, March 2000, November 2007, May 2011, in July 2018. And then I said, well, what happened to the measure of global measure of risk, beta risk, S&P? Well, it dropped significantly immediately thereafter. Yeah. I'm not, you know me, I have no view. I don't think markets are going up or down. I'm just managing risk for people. But it would seem that inflation by their measure is destabilizing to the sand pile. Right. Right. But then you can make the argument, I say in the piece, I say, now you can also say that in all those periods where you had this rising inflation, it was matched with tightening monetary policy. So maybe it was the tightening monetary policy that caused the destabilization of the sand pile. And so maybe this time's different. So maybe this time inflation's not transitory. <laughs> maybe it just keeps going. Well, let's get back to that idea of not having a view because it's something that a lot of people struggle with. Um, and this idea of it all being about managing risk is, I always find a fascinating topic to, to discuss because you're right, that's what it is. I mean, everyone has an overlay of a view on top of that, but at the end of the day, it is about risk. So, so how do you classify and calculate the risk of inflation? Because that, to me now, that is clearly the big risk out there is that, is that we are, as you say, in a transition to a different environment. Yeah, you know, again, we, we talk a lot. In fact, my May piece, if you, I really should put titles on because it'd be easier for me to remember which is which. But right. the, my, my May piece is what we would title as X versus F of X, right? So we talk all the time, you know, the, the market, the system, what I'm working on for September is what I would call the the challenge of measurement. And and, and the market, the methodology, the the whole history of, Random walk, Gaussian probability distribution is about forecasting X, right? We're trying to forecast the outcomes. And and because we can't do that precisely, we assign probabilistic expectations around them using fundamentally wrong normal probability distribution and the statistics, mean and variance statistics that go along with it. And in reality, and again, this is a very Nassim Taleb idea, Risk is about managing your payout function to X. It's about the F of X, yeah. right? And and how you construct that. And so, in my August write-up at the end, when we you know, we finish our self-organized criticality comparison of Afghanistan and central bank policy and COVID policies, and then we talk about investment portfolios, and I uses the analogy there: Formula One race cars, and in a in a forty circuit. Formula One race, the guy who wins is the guy with the best brakes. Right. And, you know, one, he completes the race because guys with bad brakes don't finish the race. 
And two, he wins massively because the guy with the best brakes can go the fastest in the straight parts. And that's the perfect analogy for compounded returns and convexity in portfolios. What separates compounding, which you know, should be the objective of fiduciary asset managers, should be the objective of anybody managing their own money, is how you manage in the sharpest turns and the fastest straightaways. And yeah. the simple mathematics, and again, you've heard me say every time you've ever spoken to me, it's just math. It's nothing has nothing to do with X. It only has to do with the function you have in your payout relationship to X. And what you want that to be is convex. And and again, in my race car analogy, which to give him credit is really Julian's race car analogy, he's sensitive about that. You know, the, <laughs> the, 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 the fact that you have good brakes means you can decelerate. So think of convexity as decelerating fast when you're losing money. So decelerating the cost of losses and accelerate in the straightaway. So you're able to go faster into the curve and then decelerate because of your good brakes into the risky part. And then you're able to come much faster out of the curve because you've taken the curve much tighter than the guy who, instead of putting good brakes in, decided to just hold 40% of his engine capacity out of the race and drive at 60% uh, yeah. in his balanced portfolio racer, right? And he's going to not go very fast in the straightaway and he's not going to, and he's going to go really wide around the turn because he's doesn't have good brakes in the car, you know, and through the 95 percentile of the racetrack, which is windy and curvy without really fast straightaways and really sharp turns. You don't really tell the difference because you don't need to use more than the 60% capacity, but every time there's a fast bit and a dangerous bit, the guy with the best brakes separates himself. And over 40 laps, 40 years of compounding, he's so far ahead, the other guy might as well not even be there. Yeah, yes. Yeah. That's our philosophy. Yeah, there's it, it, a couple of things there that I find really interesting. Uh, you know, the first is the other car on the track, who's the guy who has spent all his money on a gigantic engine and doesn't worry so much about the brakes because he feels like there's some outside agency that anytime he comes off in a corner is going to nudge him back on the track again. He's going to be able to keep going flat out. You know, that, that guy has, has really kind of had his confidence shored up by watching that happen over the last few years. But more importantly, that, that compounding idea, you know, I, I'm in the middle of writing something myself about this. The idea that this should all be compounding with risk control is such a fundamental way to think of investing. It's, it's how it, was always done it how it really should be done it's the safest most reliable way to do it has the fact that that opportunity has essentially been removed from investors you know it's it's almost impossible now to get any kind of decent compounding return with a margin of safety how deliberate is that on the part of policymakers or is it just a coincidental result of the policies they've made yeah, in a sense, it's it's the sand pile of the financial right. market. So it's the fourth sand pile in our analogy is the sand pile of financial markets. And they've made it so dangerous that everyone believes they have to protect it forever. Right? Yeah, And so they'll forever prop it up and forever straighten out the curves and 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 then they won't and they never have and they and they won't and and yet again you know if you you know i make this comparison all the time i think in the piece when i'm comparing the the racers i'm comparing a convex 
structured portfolio with a with, risk with parity a barbell. Porf- yeah. with a risk yeah. parity with it. So the, the barbell is convex and the risk parity is balanced. You know, risk parity could not have come through a more conducive right. two decades than what we've had, right? That the Alan Greenspan created central bank reaction function to slashing interest rates when equity prices fell, created a portfolio benefit of the 60-40 model, and then the risk parity version of levering the lower risk part, right? That created this running return and and risk reduction in the risk mitigating negative correlation uh, of bonds and equities, courtesy of a central bank. Well, obviously it approaching 0% interest rates, to get that to work better, you have to apply a lot more leverage to it. But even during that 20-year golden period, you had been far better off with the barbell racer, make a lot more money. What you've foregone in returns by pulling your money, you know, taking energy out of the engine and holding it in fixed income, so you're not going too fast in the curves, Right. Your foregone, your opportunity cost of the returns of equities over that period, you know, is dwarf the benefit of sitting in these bonds, even as they've gone from highs in interest rates to zero. Yeah. You would have been way better off paying the supposed cost, the, the short-term cost of owning explicit protection and putting more juice in the engine, right? Owning more equities. So, you know, the combination of explicit long vol hedging strategies and more equities made a lot more money than bonds. We're talking double, right? The returns yeah, we're are talking, double. You know, in, in my example, you, you've doubled since 2009. Right. Right. In, right. in the best the best period you could possibly imagine for risk parity. Yeah. Right. And, and just a simple one of long vol, long equities is is has lapped the other racer. And, you know, and that's starting when interest rates were up here. Yeah, and that's starting when equities were down here, and, and so now we're starting with all-time extreme valuations of the components of that risk parity basket, and, and the all-time highs of their valuations, and the all-time highs of leverage applied to the risk parity strategy, and the all-time high reliance on the central bank artificially determined negative correlation of the two. Meanwhile, in several asset classes, not necessarily equities, but in several asset classes, you're at all-time lows of volatility. Yeah. So the ability to construct the break component is as good as it's ever been. And so you know, it makes more sense now than it did then. And starting then, you've more than doubled the other guy when it benefited him more. And this is where we get into the problem. This is, like I said, what I'm sort of writing about for September, the challenge of measurement. So at the end of that 40-lap race... You know, so that the 40 lap race, in a sense, is like a compounding period versus, well, if we just measured average lap speed, which yep. is the yep. average on return, that has, tells you nothing about who's going to win the race, right? The guy who's going to win the race is the guy with the best breaks, right? But at the end of the race, at the, you, know, you watch your F1 on TV. I don't know if you're a big F1 fan. I am. Right? At the end of the race, when the announcers are explaining to the fans who won, how do they d- describe the contribution of the breaks? Right. They, they don't, right? They talk about speed and time and et cetera. You know, when, and this is the big problem we, you know, not a problem, it's a problem, but it's, it's a short lived problem. If, you know, somebody who wants to talk to us about working with them and they say, well, send me your performance. And I always say, well, that's, that's like measuring your goalkeeper by the 
goal scorers metric. Right. Yeah. So how many goals did you score? Well, I'm playing goalkeeper. How, how fast did you go? Well, I'm, I'm the breaks. How fast did you go? Because you had good breaks. How many goals yeah. did you score? Because you were able to put more strikers on the pitch because you had a good goalkeeper. Yeah. Right. You know, I say this all the time to people, you know, depending on you're better than this guy because you cost less than he did in this period. That's like measuring your insurance by the cost without asking what's insured. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's exactly right. And, and it, it takes me perfectly under something else that I wanted to talk to you about. And, we, and we've kind of, you and I've chatted about this before, but what is this blind spot, do you think, that investors have with regards this concept that the hedge to the risk is in many ways more important than how you construct the risk itself, right? What is the blind spot and, and how do you go about convincing people that that is a, an important blind spot to, to kind of take into consideration. Yeah. yeah. Challenge of measurement, right? It's the challenge of measurement. So the biggest problem that you know, we spend most of our time talking to fiduciaries, the first thing you need is to find somebody who thinks it's their job or their objective to target geometrically compounded returns. Right. Right. Most people don't because the industry has standardized short-term annual arithmetic returns. And the the industry has standardized as a measure of risk, Gaussian statistical mean variance probability distributions, which will tell you that what you do at the mean is what matters. Whereas in a geometric compounding progression, it's what you do in the wings that matter because the actual returns of the market are not normally distributed. They're not a random walk. They're a power law. They're like a Richter scale. And the impact to compounding of the wings, of the two percentile wings, is far greater than the impact to compounding of the 96 percentile middle. In fact, I have a picture. I may stick it in the September monthly. Back to my soccer analogy, right? I have a normal distribution drawn over a soccer pitch. It's the same thing. If you think about it, you spend 96% of the time in the middle of the pitch, and two percentile each in the two penalty boxes. And the only thing that matters to the outcome is what happens in the two penalty boxes. Yeah. And yet, you, you know, you have all kinds of measurements about time of possession and passes and all the intricacies that attract eyeballs to what's happening in the middle, right? All the factor modeling and complex uh, PCR analysis and all this crap. When the only thing that drives the compounding is what happens in the in the two percentile wings. And as you say, the goals against in the game of compounding count more against you than the goals for count for you because of the magic of compounding. If you lose 50%, you have to make 100% to get it back. The non-ergotic, again, something all of your listeners should go and Google and read up on is ergodicity and the difference between the ensemble average methodology of expected returns in a a single timeframe horizon and the time averaging of a path-dependent history sandpile relevant through time, which is what compounding is. Yeah. Are there any classes of investors? I mean, one would imagine that family offices are probably the most predisposed to this as an idea because they haven't been corrupted by working in the industry and and switching to asset gathering and performance benchmarking and all that kind of stuff. They are genuinely trying to 
solve for the problem that investing has always been about, which is grow and protect your capital. So are family offices more in tune with this, or are you, are you even seeing them, the way we've seen this FOMO thing take over, are even family offices being pulled into that same yeah. morass? So too, too many family offices are managed by professionals that they've hired from the uh, right. yeah, financial right. industry. Uh, you know, I love when you're speaking to a guy who it's his money, which he's probably made in a business, and then he puts on his advisor that he's hired from Goldman Sachs or someplace on the phone. You're like, well, conversation over. Hey, the thing that mostly has, you know, over time has people caught on, right? Obviously, the risk is what hurts if it happens. Well, what has hurt most people for the last dozen years, and especially the last 18 months, is missing the upside. Yeah. Right? You know, the, the, the black swan event last year wasn't the pandemic. Pandemics come along all the time. There's nothing about the pandemic that is out of the ordinary in any way, right? Every virus is unique in terms of its transmissibility and its uh, how severe it is and et cetera. But those happen all the time. What was the black swan was the response to it. That's what we've never, ever seen before. And thus the 100% rally of equity markets and you know far more than that of cryptocurrencies, et cetera, right? And that's what most people fail to capture because they didn't have good enough breaks. And so because they didn't have good enough breaks, they're unable to sustain going into the sharp corner in March and accelerate coming out of it. But the yeah. guy with good breaks on, as I always say, and you'll get sick of hearing me say it, participate and protect, participate and protect, participate and protect. I'm not saying take less risk. I'm always saying and have been saying relentlessly, take more risk, but do right. that because you have good breaks. Do that because you have a good goalkeeper. What I'm advocating to everybody all day, every day, get out of defensive midfielders. Get out of things that do not participate on the upside and do not protect on the downside. You know, carry is, is the ultimate fiduciary trait. Carry did not participate in the 30% equity up here of 2019, participated and then some in March 2020 sell-off, and did not participate in the 100% rally coming out the other side. Yeah. The only people who make money out of carry are the fiduciaries. Yeah, so true. Right? And, and it drives me nuts, you know, the, the daisy chain of fiduciaries allocating capital to carry. Why would somebody, a sophisticated sovereign wealth fund who has all the trading capacity of anybody, you know, greatest banking coverage relationships trading in the world, allocate money to absolute return managers that are running levered carry? There's no logic to it. If they wanted to do it, they did. The only reason they would do it is because then the leverage isn't on their books. And they're right. all reaping the fiduciary benefit of getting a percentage, uh, you know, a participation salary incentive of the performance at the mean, destroying compounding in the wings through time. And I, yeah. you know, I draw all the time a simple sample. I, I can't remember if you ever knew my mate who was at Morgan Stanley and then was the chief risk officer at the University of Chicago and he, Mike Edelman and Edelson, and he did a great presentation at the Vol Summit in New York one year on the University of Chicago's history of returns that showed the concavity of their returns relative to their benchmark, right? And you can create that for any institutional investor, and it more or less looks the same. 
And then if you strip that into the compounded line, so we do just an, a remade example of Mike's presentation, just a hypothetical of somebody targeting a 0.6 beta benchmark and the type of concavity that's very common, that's basically the equivalent of what he showed, but this is a hypothetical one. You know, and, and over a, I think we take data back to 1973 or something over that period, the concave hypothetical return of the institutional manager has, has underperformed the 0.6 beta benchmark over that 40 year period. $100 has grown to $800, and the benchmark is $100 would have grown to $2,600. Right. Right. And then we show if you flipped the equivalent, just mathematically flipped the equivalent concavity into positive convexity, if you could have constructed the same, the inverse of their returns, if you just done the opposite of what they did, that 800, which would have been 2,600, if they just put the money, 60% in the S&P and 40% in cash becomes 16,000 or something. Right? right. Right. Because all of the compounding is taking place in the wings and that's where the convexity shows itself. But the, you know, this, this is... This is the bit that, that I really struggle with because you just took a set of data back to the 70s, right, which shows this. So this is not, you no. don't need to cherry pick this. You don't need to pick the bottom in the equity markets or the top in commodities. You don't have to do any of that stuff, right? This is really, really straightforward stuff. And I struggle to understand why we as investors struggle so badly with it because, and again, you, you come to that mindset of yours, which is, I'm just managing the risk. I don't care if the market goes up or down. To be able to do that and strip out the up and down part, which is where all the emotion comes in, right? The risk is not emotion. The risk is, I've got a set of parameters here. I've got a set of threats. I need to handicap them effectively. There's no emotion in that, as you say. What can people do to just try and get out of that mindset and and think about the stuff that you say? Because it, look, your your analogies, every single time you and I talk, I just go away going, man, I wish I'd thought of that because it's just so, it's such a great way of explaining this to people. What can people do for themselves to try and help themselves get into one mindset and out of the other, even, even 10%? Here's the problem, right? Here's, here's the problem. The system is set up to encourage the common investor to drive without brakes, right? It's telling you, come to your fiduciary, come buy our product, right? Don't worry about it. Now, obviously the system's cognizant of this, which is why it created the 60-40 model, right? The 60-40 model, yeah, which is, yeah. is just a practical representation of what's known as the Kelly criterion, right? So avoid the insolvency barrier, the bankruptcy barrier by holding 40% of your capital out of the game. So just gamble with the 60%. And if you get lucky on average, you'll do okay. And avoid going the absorbing bound of going bankrupt by putting 100% in the game, right? So basically just drive the car more slowly and you'll be okay. But then of course you massively underperform at the fastest parts and the sharpest turns. And you look like everyone else in the 95 percentile yeah. middle part of the race. And the system, if you think about how easy it is in the system to take on correlated risk or to forego liquidity for a return, it's very easy. I'm sure you're one of the most sophisticated guys I know. You can get on your phone, your computer and buy stocks and buy bonds and it's a piece of cake. But 
issuing a stock or issuing a bond is a bit more complicated, right? Taking on liabilities or contra assets isn't so easy, right? Mm -hmm. Now, here in Singapore or virtually anywhere nowadays, but in Asia for the last 30 years because of the financial repression that's much longer established out here, you know, you can walk into any bank and buy a product that embeds short optionality, right? Right. You can buy a dual currency deposit. You can buy a... auto callable note, you can buy a, you know, callable corporate bond structure, all of these things embed short optionality. Try buying the optionality. The guy wants to, you know, set up lines and disclosures and et cetera. It's really hard. Now, the, the one place that is easily available for anybody to go and buy volatility is VIX, right? Now, the problem with that is, it's the one place that's available. And so all of the right. demand in the world goes to that one place and it tends to be incredibly expensive and inefficient. And all the big users, that, to the extent that there are wizened fiduciary institutional investors that are constructing or hiring people to construct thoughtful hedging strategies, well, the preponderance of that ends up in VIX and S&P vault because it's yeah. the biggest, most liquid, easiest to transact. So in the world, if you if you think you want to buy something that has good value, you probably want to go where uh, supply outweighs demand, not necessarily where demand outweighs supply. And so it's just really hard. And also, you know, we've all most people have grown up in a world where they were taught random walk, uh, normal distribution, Gaussian capital asset pricing model, efficient market hypothesis, all of this stuff that's based on this wrong mathematics. And you go and implement it and you explain away the tales, right? You say, well, that was a black swan. Nobody could have seen that coming, right? That wasn't my fault. And you hope the central, every time you hope the central banks bail out the system or bail out the institutions that you're a part of and you carry on. And because you're a fiduciary, you start over at zero, right? You're, You're driving the race one lap at a time, right? In fact, you're, you're driving the race with a remote control device as the fiduciary, well, the owner of the capital is in the car. You're not right. worried about brakes, right? Right. You know, and then if you crash, you start the next lap. And no matter how far you fall behind, because you're only measuring it by lap, you think you start equal the competition the next lap. Right. When in reality, that guy's now, you know, laps ahead of you uh, in, a, in a compounding environment. Yeah. Another analogy, I was, I was thinking about this as I was uh, Ryder Cup, right? The difference between match play golf and stroke play Let's not play talk golf. about the Ryder Cup. Come on, let's not talk about the Ryder Cup. We don't need to, we don't need to take that. <laughs> the difference between match play and stroke play, right? In match play, you'd play a lot more aggressive, right? Because you're only yeah. playing one hole at a time. In stroke play, that quadruple bogey matters. Yeah. Right? yeah. You'll, never cut, you'll never dig your way out of the hole. The different thing. And so, you know, the big problem is the incentive, the fact that regulations have been, as is always the case, regulations have, in essence, been written by the regulated. So the regulations are there to benefit and protect the financial industry. And, you know, obviously banks are the biggest example in recent history in 2008, where, you know, they am taking really bad F of X super senior tranches of subprime CDOs, which because they could account for them using this flawed risk methodology and regulatory accounting construct as riskless as zero RWAs, and they could apply infinite leverage to them, which meant that when the, you know, in the 
risk is what hurts if it happens when the implied correlation of the underlying mortgages of those went from the assumed 20% to 21%. And those got written down from AAA securities to double B securities in one go. It wiped out 100% of the capital in the global banking system. Yeah, that, that, yeah. That's how far off the measure was. Right. But the, 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 the dichotomy there, as you, as you said, people, investors are being encouraged, you know, come in and drive carefully and drive carefully. And that's a siren song that seduces most people, right? You, you always get, again, an investor behavior, you get the tails and the people who are ultra cautious and have gold buried in the backyard. And then you have the AMC apes at the other end of the thing, right? YOLOing for till the cows come home. But the, the average investor is susceptible to that. Here's the smart, safe, sensible way to do yeah. this. So what is it about us that fails to connect those two dots, that the smart, sensible, safe way to do it, as you say, is to have good brakes and be able to drive fast in the straightaway? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> bad math, right? That, that that's simple, yeah. Bad math. You know, so the, a wrong incentive structure for the fiduciary, advisory, wealth manager, pension fund, insurance company, endowment, right? Bad incentive structure built around bad math. And, you know, read Mandelbrot. And I, I, I don't know when, you know, he was working on this stuff back in the 60s and 70s and proving, you know, everybody knows. I mean, any, you know, any economics or finance PhD should know who Mandelbrot is. Right. People know who Nassim Taleb is. People, you know, people know. Same the, guy, right? <laughs> you know, the math it's not disputed that the math is wrong. It's known that the math is wrong, but the the regulatory capture says, eh, yeah, we'll stick with this, right? We'll we'll continue to apply the same incorrect math to Basel three, which is what they're going to assure us keeps us safe from the Taliban when they step away. We'll just increase the tier one capital from eight percent to ten percent, and everything will be fine. Well, <laughs> you know, last time eight percent was at least you know ninety percent too little. Yeah, yeah. In the case of Lehman, you know, and everyone else. So, yeah, I don't, you know, and there's no, you know, I've been pounding my head against that regulatory wall, and I still am involved in it with various regulators. I, there's no momentum to change that. There's no yeah. discussion about addressing the core fundamental flaw in it. And so it's on every individual. And you know, that individual, you can be a an individual as working as a fiduciary in the industry that can choose to do what's to the benefit of the in capital owners you're a fiduciary for. Or if you're an individual and figuring out how to either manage your own money or find people who will manage your money, you can challenge them on a different measurement of return, a different measurement of risk. You know, we talked about it and you've probably seen our risk methodology and it's what Nassim talks about and Spixnagel in terms of a risk heuristic. It's just, what is your payout function? So yeah. if you're, you know, what, what was prime brokers payout function when he was a counterparty in uh, Viacom uh, equity swaps with a family office at whatever times leverage. What was his payout function? Well, it was a bad payout function, right? He was making a, a few million dollars in the leverage and he had all the downside. 
Yeah. Why wouldn't a bank be required to measure that risk? Why why is he allowed to measure the risk as a as a two standard deviation likelihood that Viacom won't go down more than 20% in a 10 day period to then take something that I don't know, let's say he's making 1% on, on the $4 billion leverage on a $5 billion swap. And he drops $2 billion in a day. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's so true. It's so true. I'm conscious of your time because I know it's getting late and you want to start your weekend, but I just one one more thing I want to ask you about. And it, and it hadn't occurred to me before we had this conversation. And you mentioned the word about 15 minutes ago, and, I, and I, I've, it's been rattling around in the back of my head since then. As someone who doesn't have a view on up and down, as someone who looks to manage risk, through that prism, how do you understand cryptocurrencies? I, I, uh, I tell my central banking friends, who I still speak to, every time I speak to them, that they should get up every morning and look at the cryptocurrency charts and ask if they think they're doing the right thing. <laughs> so in a sense, to me, it's the it's the inverse of central bank stupidity. And, Interesting. And it's it's a it's a means to flee. Now it might, and I, you know, I'm not a techie guy. I have some friends who are quite yeah. knowledgeable in that world. Um, it might be solving the technology issues and and decentralizing things. And you know, can you you know, decentralize what are currently very centralized social network operations? Can you decentralize banking and money, obviously, which is the big talk about things and and, and what practical implications are there? But, you know, in the bigger libertarian sense, it's just escaping the fiat reserve currency system. And it's a hedge for them carrying on. It's obviously exposed to them deciding to restore a, a natural equilibrium, i.e. let the, the sand pile find a natural stable state and, and, and exit from the critical state that they're perpetually holding it up in, right? So I think crypto is a fantastic hedge for the inflation, relentless money creation and credit creation. And it's obviously performed incredibly well since the acceleration of that in March of last year. And if they keep going, if as so many people tell me, they'll, they'll, they'll never stop, Dave. They'll never stop, Dave. Well, then own crypto. Get all you can get. Own everything you can imagine. Own every long duration technology thing you can get and keep writing it. It's been a great thing to write, right? But hedge your exposure if they change their mind. If they decide to let interest rates go up, if they decide that whatever their prioritization is, that that the destabilizing social impacts of inflation uh, take over from their fears of the solvency risk, then that could be a reversal of the benefit, right? So I think crypto is a fantastic fast engine to attach to a car that has good brakes. Perfectly done. Mate, listen, I can't thank you enough for this. I know it's late on a Friday night and I really appreciate you doing this and it's been way too long. So let's do this again sooner rather than later. I, 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 won't say we'll, I won't say we'll get out for a beer because the chances of me coming back to yeah. Singapore if I have to stay in a hotel room for three weeks are minimal. Uh, as soon as that's fixed, because we really, these would be much livelier if we did them with a beer, I'm sure. Damn straight. Damn straight. Dave, thanks so much. And, and say hi to Julian for me and thank him too. Will do. Take care, mate. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. 
Every time I talk to Dave, I come away just like I did this time with with new perspectives on old ideas and a, a much better understanding of, of not just the world around me, but also how to think about it and how to position for the risks that are uppermost in my own mind. You know, Dave's ability to just not care about market direction, but to focus on managing risk is something we could all learn so much from. And I've got to say, I'm already looking forward to the next time I get to talk with him. You can find out more about Convex Strategies by visiting their website, convex-strategies.com. And there you're going to find all of Dave's monthly updates. And trust me, once you start down that rabbit hole, you are in for a real treat. That's all from me for another episode. I'll be back again soon. In the meantime, thank you so much for subscribing and thanks for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.